great to be with you this morning. If we've never met, my name's Sam. I'm one of the servants here. It's a joy and a privilege to bring God's word to you again. And so if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Proverbs chapter four? If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are making their way down the aisles. And if you'd like a Bible, just slip up your hand and they'd love to get one to you. While you're turning there, this morning I want to talk to you about one of the most important things, if not the most important thing about you. This thing can and will alter the trajectory of your life. In fact, because this thing touches every area of our lives, if it is not attended to well, it can introduce chaos to you, to your family, to your job, and it can derail you. My grandfather, who was an absolute lion of a preacher, he would often tell my dad, who has since passed this down to me over the course of my life, he would say, the most important thing that you can possess in this life is a clean heart, a clean heart. And so if you're there at Proverbs chapter four, we'll pick it up in verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. It says, my son, Give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. This is the word of the Lord. If you like to take notes in church, I'm tagging this text this morning after the words of the great theologian Bruce Springsteen who said, everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. And so by way of introduction, if you're a fan of film, you might be aware of an early 80s film that's getting a lot of attention right now for its recent remastering. It's considered a timeless masterpiece among film lovers. In fact, it's one of the most streamed movies of all time, and you will probably never guess what movie this is. It's the movie Stalker by the Russian filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky. And trust me, this movie is not as creepy as it sounds. In fact, there's no stalking involved. And I'm guessing most of us haven't seen this film. And listen, if you're here and you're not, you're not a sci-fi person, please just bear with me this morning. Let's just use our imagination. But in the film, we are transported into a dystopian sci-fi world following the journey of three men, the professor, the writer, and the stalker, who is really just a guide. And the professor and writer have come to the guide because they know that he can help them where they need to go, to get away from this post-apocalyptic wasteland that they inhabit. And so they set off on this journey toward an old, abandoned, government-restricted area called the Zone. And inside the Zone, they're trying to get to a place called the Room, the Inner Sanctum. Why do they want to get to the Room, you might ask? because in the room, you achieve your heart's greatest desire, its deepest longing. The guide tells them that this will be the most important moment of their lives. In the room, you get what you most want, which is why when they get to the entrance of the room and the guide opens the door, 
all of a sudden, both the writer and professor get cold feet. Why? This was the whole point of their difficult, strenuous journey to get to this magical, magical room where they get what they want. Who doesn't want what they want? Well, just before they're about to enter the room, it dawns on both the professor and writer. What if I don't know what I want? What if I don't want what I think I want? Because the room reveals everything. What you get is not what you think you want, but what you actually most deeply desire and wish for. Listen, I wonder if we can identify with this if we're being honest with ourselves. If I were to ask you as a Christian what you really want, what you most deeply desire and hope for, you would have the right Christian answer, no doubt. And I would not question your sincerity. I believe that that is what you think you want. But are we confident enough to say that what we think we love at a cognitive, intellectual level is actually the innermost desire of our hearts? Because the truth is, we live in a time where our hearts are referenced constantly. And the gospel of our culture for some time now has been a Disney-esque message of just follow your heart. Believe in yourself. Do what makes you happy. We are constantly told that our hearts are reliable, trustworthy, and consistent. And if we just follow our heart, it will lead us into true life and happiness. The problem is, if we're being honest with ourselves, we know firsthand how inconsistent it is. Everyone in this room has a story of how they followed their heart and it ended up leading them into some terribly foolish places because our hearts desired something stupid, to be quite frank with you this morning. Insert your own story here. See, our hearts are not great guides. Left to themselves, our hearts don't make reliable compasses because they always point to what we desire most, but they don't possess the ability to tell us if those are actually good things or not. And this lines up with exactly with what we read in the pages of Scripture, right? The Bible says that our hearts are actually much more complex and conflicted than we think. The prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Martin Luther said that left alone, the human heart is bent in on itself. Augustine, the fourth century bishop from North Africa, in his autobiography, Confessions, writes, my inner life is a foreign country. So it is incredibly important that we understand the effects of the heart on our lives and how our desires shape who we are. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to get to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart and its impact on our discipleship to Jesus. You ready this morning? Here we go, if you're taking notes. Number one, the priority of the heart. The priority of the heart. Notice verse 20 again. It says, my son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. This is King Solomon speaking, the one who is given divine wisdom from the Lord. And here he's telling his son how to live wisely to the glory of God. And here he says, son, I want you to lean in and I want you to pay very close attention to what I'm about to say. This is very important. And throughout the first four chapters of the book of Proverbs, he has told his son, listen, son, 
there are two paths in life. There's wisdom and there's folly. There's life or there's death. There's godly instruction or there's your own destruction. And the same two paths are before us today. We are either going to be influenced by the wisdom of God through the empowerment of the Spirit by the way of Jesus, that is the way of the righteous, or we will be influenced by the way of the serpent, the enemy of our souls through the enticement of the fool and the way of the world. We can live by the way, the truth, and the life by which no one gets to the Father, but by Jesus, which is the narrow road, and few are those that find it. Or we can take the wide road which leads to destruction and many are those that enter into it. And listen, the biggest issue for you and I right now in our discipleship to Jesus is not what we face out there in the world. It's what's going on in our hearts. Your heart is the most important thing about you. We are more than our behaviors. We are more than what we think or even believe intellectually. You say what you say, you do what you do, not because of what you think or know, but because of what you love. Because the heart is the core of who you are. Proverbs 27, 19 says, as in water face reflects face, so a man's heart reflects the man. You are what you are today because that is what is in your heart. And really, the greatest failure that we see in nominal Christianity today is behavior modification without heart change. It's Phariseeism. And listen, behavior modification, apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, is the scariest way to go to hell. There are people who know all the right things, they know how to clean up their act at least for a while, and yet they have never been made new creations in Christ Jesus. And Jesus calls them what? Whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones inside. All they've done is put a fresh coat of paint on a crack house. It's acting new without being made new. You can know and do all the right things for all the wrong reasons and still be at odds with God. But walking with Jesus will change what we believe and how we behave because Jesus has changed and is changing our hearts. But you can't reverse the order. You can't just say, I'm going to start acting like a Christian and then voila, I'll magically become one. No, Jesus has to give you a new heart. Because the glorious gospel of grace is that we are astoundingly bad people to the very core every one of us. But Jesus died paying for every one of our infinite number of sins with his perfect sinless life, granting to us total forgiveness as he rose from the dead, giving us new life today and eternal life forever. And now Christ comes into incredibly sinful men and women like you and I, and he gives us new hearts so that we can repent of our sin-sick ways and trust the person and work of Christ alone for salvation. Amen? This is the gospel. In Ezekiel 36, God says what? He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Christianity is not simply behavior transplantation or modification. It's heart regeneration. 
And yet, even though we've been given new hearts with the ability to carry new affections, these hearts must continually be trained and retrained, formed and reformed to love what matters most, the priority of the heart. Secondly, this morning, the preciousness of the heart. Look with me at verse 23. It says, keep your heart with all diligence. The ESV says, with all vigilance. The CSB says, above all else. I can think of few scriptures that start with those words, above all else. In fact, Hebrew scholars translate, translate this to say, more than anything watched, guard your heart. Or, more than all guarding, guard. Again, this goes back to your top priority. Husbands, when your wife goes away on the women's retreat and she gives you that honeydew list, you know that you can do everything on the middle of that list and everything toward the bottom of that list. But if you don't do the first thing on that list, when your wife gets home, you're in for it, right? This is to be our top priority. This is to be guarded, watched, kept above all things, your heart. Solomon is saying, son, there are things that you guard in your life because they're precious to you, but the heart is the one thing that deserves a double guard. But in saying that the heart is a top priority above all others, we've almost got to back up and ask why the writer is saying that. Like, what is it about our hearts that make them so precious? What's actually at stake in the guarding of our heart? Because I think most people's idea of the heart is that their feelings and emotions exclusively, and that's it. We just celebrated Valentine's Day, so all you need to know for this to be true is for you to have gone down the card aisle at Target. This is what our society says the heart is. It's a very shallow view of the heart. And honestly, our society gets this view of the heart all the way back to the ancient Greek philosophers who taught that humans are divided beings. They taught this idea, idea of dualism, that your mind and your heart are at war with each other. Fortunately, the Bible has a lot to say about your heart, and that is not one of them. Actually, the way the Bible describes you is holistically. You're not a divided person, rather you're an integrated person. And the Bible describes the heart not merely as a container for feelings and emotions, but as the epicenter of our beings. It's mission control. It's the sum, it's the seat, it's the center of who you are. Proverbs 10 says the heart can be wise. Proverbs 15 says the heart can ponder. The heart can plan a man's ways. It says the heart considers, the heart understands, the heart debates, the heart remembers, your heart thinks. But not only is it like a mind, it's broader than that. Your heart does include emotions. When you experience joy, sorrow, bitterness, anguish, anxiety, despair, affection, that is what is going on in your heart. Not only that, but your heart has a will. That is, your heart decides. It desires and longs, and those desires will direct the course of your life. Paul David Tripp said this. He said, the heart is the real essential you. All the ways in which the Bible refers to the inner person, the mind, the emotions, the spirit, the soul, the will, are all summed up with this one term, heart. 
The heart is the steering wheel of every human being. Everything we do is shaped and controlled by what our hearts desire. This is why the heart is precious, because the heart is you. It is the most fundamental you. And if the heart is the sum and the center, if it's the mission control of our lives, then we are not merely thinking things. You're not just a brain on a stick. But somewhere along the way, beginning with the French philosopher René Descartes during the Enlightenment in the 17th century, you guys remember learning about him in school, right? What did he say? He said, I think, therefore, I am. And we have totally bought this line. We've incorporated it into our mindset. And ever since, Western society has said, well, if you just think the right things, if you just know the right things, your life will end up in a good place. And trust me, your mind and intelligence are important. The Bible has a lot to say about the transforming and the renewing of your mind, but that is to never be disconnected from the heart. We aren't just thinking things. We are more than that. We are lovers. We are lovers made in the image of God in order that we might reflect his likeness in the world. You know what blows my mind? Before God was ever creator, he was a lover. That is, he was a loving father in perfect loving union and communion with the son, so much so in his infinite love for the eternal son, he desired to have that love spill over from their union and share it with something outside of themselves. And so God created man and the world as the context for their loving relationship and enjoyment. He gave life to mankind from the overflow of his great love for Jesus from eternity past. God is a lover, and he has made us to be lovers. And that's why when God looks at us, he doesn't look at our exterior selves. He looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16 says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Psalm 44 says, God would surely have known it, for he knows the secrets of every heart. God knows what's going on in your heart right now. You may be able to fool other people. You may even be able to fool yourself. There is no fooling God. He sees the disconnect between what we think we love and what we actually desire. And what God is looking for is our whole hearts, undivided and fully committed to him. 2 Chronicles 16.9 puts it this way. The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. The Bible over and over again tells us that the heart is the most precious thing to God and so the heart should be the most precious thing to us. So let me ask you this morning, how's your heart? Take stock of your inner life right now What's the condition of your heart like? How's your heart doing? The preciousness of the heart. Thirdly, this morning, where we'll spend most of our time, the protection of the heart. The protection of the heart. Verse 23 says, keep your heart. Other translations say, guard your heart. We've said that our hearts pursue what they treasure, but what's also true is that we guard what we treasure. Parents, if I were to ask you what you treasure most, no doubt right up there at the top of the list would be your kids. 
You don't just let anyone watch your kids on date night, do you? You don't just open the door and let a stranger and say, hey man, could you watch my kids for a couple hours? No, we don't do that because our kids are precious to us. You guard what you treasure. You locked your car before you walked into church today, hopefully. I won't ask for a show of hands. You cover your PIN number at the ATM. You don't post your social security number in your Facebook bio. If you've been to a museum, there's security guards, there's surveillance cameras, there's shatterproof glass, there's sensor systems, all employed to guard what, ma- what is considered valuable by the world. And if we're prepared to guard pieces of paper and shiny rocks and things that glitter and glow a little bit, how much more should we be concerned with guarding our hearts, the epicenter of our beings from which flow the entirety of our lives? Guard your heart above all else. But here's a good question. What does the heart need protection from? Like, what's the threat? What is the threat on your heart and therefore your life, your family, your marriage, your future, if the writer is going to be this emphatic? You guard your heart because it is under constant attack. It is constantly being bombarded and assaulted. If your heart is the most important thing about you, can you take a guess at who is after your heart? The enemy of your heart is the devil himself. 1 Peter 5.8 describes him as prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. What does he want to devour? Your heart. Because he knows if he can bring down the epicenter of your being, the rest of you is coming down like a house of cards. We actually get a sobering account of this in the book of Acts with a man named Ananias. Ananias was a regular churchgoer. He was a part of the community of faith. He was a servant in the church. And yet he was caught in the act of lying to the apostles concerning his finances and what he had pledged to the Lord. And we read this in Acts 5.3. The apostle Peter says this. He says, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? Satan knew that the fastest way to derail him was to get to his heart, and the same enemy is on the prowl for you. He's not God. He can't read your thoughts. He doesn't know the secrets of your heart. But he is watching your life, and he is taking notes, and he is very familiar with the scripture where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So all Satan has to do is follow where you put your time, your attention, and your resources and attack those desires. Because he knows that's how he's going to get to your heart. And he is watching and waiting for just the right opportunity. So how do we guard against this enemy of our hearts, the roaring lion seeking to devour us? Well, there's really only two ways of guarding anything, and that's guarding both defensively and offensively. In other words, we guard our hearts from certain things and we guard our hearts to certain things. There's things you run from and there's things that you run to. First, let's take a look at what it means to guard your heart defensively in verses 24 through 27. King Solomon lays out three areas that show us where and how to guard. He says this, he says, put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. 
Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or the left. Remove your foot from evil. Do you notice a progression there? Solomon first says, guard what comes out of your mouth, then guard what you see, and then guard what you, where you go, what you do. You know what that means, right? That means for us as Christians, there are things that we should never watch. There are things that we should never listen to. Listen, there are things in our culture that cannot be received or redeemed. They must be rejected. Not all of culture, but a lot of it. Because this is one of the ways that the enemy chips away at your heart and tries to derail your discipleship to Jesus. He, he is known in scripture as the prince of this world. Which means he is the real puppeteer behind the curtain of secular culture working the strings trying to get you to bite. But notice again the progression. All it takes is for you to start talking about something for you to know that it's already having an effect on your heart. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But I don't think that just refers to what physically comes out of our mouths, although it might when you're stuck in traffic or someone cuts you off, something comes out that you just didn't even know was there. But I think also it's an internal conversation we have with ourselves. Hey, I wonder if that person's on Facebook. I wonder if they look how they used to. I wonder if that website still exists. And that curiosity leads you to actually go and look for that person or go to that website. It's from the speaking and the seeing that then leads the, to the doing, the fulfilling of the desire. Your feet take you where your heart is directed toward. So again, there are things that as Christians we should just never watch. There are things that we should just never listen to. There are places that we should never go. Can I go here this morning? When I was a youth pastor, I had teenagers and young adults who would kind of get defensive about watching particular movies and TV shows. And they would say this. They would say, you know what? That kind of stuff doesn't really affect me like it does other people. You know, I'm, I'm at this place in my spiritual walk right now where I can just kind of tune it out and enjoy the good parts. Wait, what? You think that watching nudity in movies, shows with graphic sex scenes, and not let it affect you? That might actually be a sign it already has. Maybe you've been desensitized to the point where you don't see how this is forming you at a subconscious level. But being susceptible to heart hijacking doesn't even require us an, an active participation in the practices of the world. Sometimes it's just the result of our passivity toward them. James K.A. Smith, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, he makes an accurate observation that everything you're exposed to on a daily basis is forming you in some way or another, and oftentimes it's beneath the surface of your, of your subconscious to where you can't even recognize it. But it's there, and it's deforming you from the image of Jesus and into a different mold. Cultural commentator David Foster Wallace, he used this illustration. He said, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. And the older fish nods at them and says, 
Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, What the heck is water? See, you may not even be actively participating in the world's practices, but even your passivity toward the world and its subliminal messaging is allowing it to permeate your heart via osmosis. The world around us, the water that we're swimming in, as Wallace puts it, is flowing with theologies, ideologies, and philosophies that run counter to what we know to be true about God and true about ourselves. And the way that we guard against it is by acknowledging this reality, pinpointing the life-sucking scripts being sold to us and to our kids, and combating them with the joy-giving realities contained in God's word. Amen? This is not about legalism. This is about wisdom. It's actually about freedom. You have the freedom to guard your heart by saying no to unhealthy, unprofitable things. You have the freedom in Christ to reject the cultural narratives that are trying to be forced on you, your family, your marriage, and just say, no thanks. No thanks. I care way too much about my heart to let it be formed by anything other than the way of Jesus. Listen, there is something beautiful and invaluable about an honest awareness of ourselves. That the gospel tells us that we are more sinful than we could ever realize. That our hearts are prone to wander toward wrong desires. Listen, no one has lied to me, betrayed me, or let me down more than my own heart. And listen, I'm not talking about self-loathing here. But our salvation, the purchasing of our hearts by God, costs Jesus his life. And because of that, our hearts are precious and not to be meddled with, but rather intentionally nurtured and cared for. But how willing are we to protect our hearts from being hijacked from its supreme joy? Listen, this includes the good things in your life. There are good things in your life right now that you might be tempted to let your guard down toward. Why? Because they're good things. But if they are not monitored frequently, they have the ability to sabotage your heart, turning good things into God things. And before you know it, your heart is wanting to make an idol out of it. And that thing that was once a good thing has become a bad thing because you have the propensity to make idols out of all sorts of stuff. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. And we know that our idols make crimp, pretty crummy saviors, don't we? Because eventually they get crushed by a weight that they cannot uphold and then we get crushed in the process. So we are to guard ourselves defensively from the malaise of secular formations and have an honest awareness of our tendency to make idols out of God-given pleasures. But also, we are to guard offensively. That is, we are to guard our hearts to certain things. One thing I'm really grateful for that my dad's kind of passed down to me is a love for the Puritans. I love to read the old dead guys. And one of my favorite Puritans was a guy by the name of John Flavel. And Flavel actually wrote an entire book on this one verse, keep your heart with all due, due diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. And in this fantastic little book called Keeping Your Heart, he likens the heart 
to a stringed instrument, like a guitar. Now imagine this morning that when the band got up here at 11 a.m., they hadn't practiced, they hadn't tuned, they just got up here and started playing. Thank goodness they didn't do that. That would sound pretty terrible. After their guitars had been sitting in the cases all week, they just come in here and start playing. And John Flavel says that sometimes we allow this to happen to our hearts. We forget that they need to be regularly tuned. And as a result, what flows out of them is an unbearable sound, which means that your life, your responsiveness to God, your relationship to your spouse and your kids, your attitude to your work is all out of tune. All of it. And so what must we do? We've got to tune and retune our hearts over and over and over and over again. Daily and continually, like a six-string guitar, we must continually retune our hearts to the frequency of heaven. And what tunes our hearts to heaven, you might ask? Well, it's a number of things, but primarily what tunes our hearts to heaven is practicing the things that most stir up our affections for Jesus. The answer to our wandering, distracted hearts is a greater affection, stronger desires, deeper formations. If the direction of your life is ultimately dictated by what you love, then we need to be swept up into a supreme love. We can't just resist temptation. That's not going to do it. Willpower is not going to cut it. You can't just resist inferior things. They must be replaced. And new loves must be cultivated, as opposed to every romantic comedy you watch that tells you that you can fall in and out of love. No, loves are cultivated. Loves are nurtured. And part of that love is being nurtured in you right now. Being together regularly with the family of God, in the word of God, singing the praises of God, in the presence of God, gathered around the table of God, giving generously to the work of God, this is nurturing the love in your heart right now. These practices are shaping your heart, which is why it's so important that gathering God's people is a first priority. Dare I say it, even more than your kids' sports programs or your vacation home. Because your heart, your spouse's heart, your kids' hearts will either be, tr- will either be shaped here in the context of God's transformative presence among his people, or it will be shaped elsewhere. But it can't just be about intellectual assent about God, right? Knowing key doctrines. No, it's got to be about cultivating a love for the Savior. Because the Bible says that even the demons know the scriptures. And knowing God's word is important. Listen, you can't love a God you don't know but our hearts aren't simply formed by knowledge that informs us, but by practices that form us and shape our hearts. And so my question for you this morning is this, what are those practices for you? What stirs your affections for the Savior? There are some non-negotiables, right? There's things that God has prescribed to us, things like time in prayer and meditation upon God's word. But practically speaking this morning, in the same way that you have love languages, what is your spiritual love language? Each one of us has been wired uniquely and our hearts are stirred in different ways. 
We all have spiritual love languages. We all have things that stir our affections for Jesus. What are those things for you? Find those things. And whatever those disciplines and devotions are, make them the rhythms that you center your life on and use them to tune and retune your heart to God over and over again. Amen? Briefly and finally this morning, number four if you're taking notes, the product of the heart. The product of the heart. Let's go back to our key verse one more time. It says in verse 23, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. The NLT says, for it determines the course of your life. Listen, you are where you are today because that is where your heart has taken you. And where you will end up one day is where your heart will have taken you. Your heart is leading you somewhere right now. Your current habits and practices, or lack thereof, are actually forming your core identity. You are being oriented by some vision of what you want your life to be. And the question isn't whether or not you long for the good life, it's a matter of what version you long for. Because it can be easy to think that you want the right thing, but have put your heart on autopilot and be headed somewhere completely different. Listen, at the end of the day, everyone wants the good news of the gospel. Some just want it without Christ, without the way of Jesus, the narrow road that leads to life. Listen, everyone wants the kingdom. Some just want it without the king. And honestly, what every sin, what every wrong turn, what every derailment basically boils down to at its very core is not wrong belief or wrong thinking. It's disordered loves. Augustine talked about this. He said that disordered loves will always lead to a disordered life. Life change flows not from the acts of the will, but from loves of the heart. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, he asked some very pointed questions, didn't he? But if you take a look at each instance, buried beneath each question, Jesus is actually asking another question. And that question is, what do you want? He asked this very question of the two disciples in John chapter 1. The rest of his disciples, he asks, will you come and follow me? Which is just another way of saying, what do you want? After his resurrection, he asks Peter three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Just another way of saying, what do you want? And Jesus presents the same question to each one of us here today and every day for the rest of our lives. Do we want him? Is he the chief object of our desire? And if not, why not? Out of your heart spring the issues of life, the writer of Proverbs says. And Jesus would later go on to use this very language in John chapter 7, which is the invitation I want to leave us with this morning. He says this, he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Christianity is an inside-out religion. It's about what flows out of you. And listen, for some of us here this morning, 
This all might sound a bit daunting, right? Like you're thinking about what I've just said and you're thinking, all right, so I got to guard my heart defensively. I got to guard my heart offensively. I got to stir up my affections for Jesus. Wow, that's a lot. And we fall flat on our face every single day in this area. And our hearts are constantly veering us off in different directions. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we actually keep a pure heart? How do we keep a clean heart on the straight and narrow path toward life? in Jesus. Jesus here in John chapter 7, this living water he's speaking of, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit. Listen, willpower is not going to cut it. You need a greater power. You need the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And how is this possible? How are we able to receive the Spirit? The beauty of the gospel is that King Solomon writing to his son, he knew his son could never make the great. He knew his son could never keep a pure heart. His son could never perfectly follow his instruction. But the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is the true faithful son of the book of Proverbs. Jesus is the ideal son of Proverbs 4 who listens perfectly to his father's instruction, who does what his father says, who keeps his heart pure and follows the path the Father laid out for him all the way to the cross for you in place of you. He is the Son who grants others the right to become the sons of God. And he is bringing many sons to glory. Amen?